Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. But otherwise, I'm a writer and a theater maker, um, mostly a director. I do act from time to time, but uh, and sort of just a general Shakespeare devised theater weird ass enthusiast. Uh, that's weird ass enthusiast, not weird ass enthusiast. That but, sounded weird. <laughs> sure. No, I am the resident ass enthusiast. Excuse me. This like, is true. Get out. This is true. This is true. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are joined by the most special guest expert, one of my absolute dearest and best friends in the entire world, the light of my life, Molly Seremet. She's here to talk about Q1 Hamlet and we are so fucking excited. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard her name before. <laughs> Because yep. yep. what we we talk about Molly what every we, other podcast at yeah least. <laughs> we've taken your name in vain many times yeah. so <laughs> yeah but at least you pronounce it right so yeah. ten I mean, points Whamlet it was that's fair like we spent what the like the first semester of for your first year just being like oh yeah you know Molly Sarah May because oh, yeah. that's how we <laughs> yeah. thought it was pronounced like Tarjay you know <laughs> we thought it was yeah. French. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, it well, I mean, it's nothing. It's a made-up name. Right. But my my family is partially French, so my dad oh. likes to say that it's Sarah May. Oh. But he's mostly just talking bullshit. I love your dad so much. Um, me too. Well, <laughs> too. welcome, Molly. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Um, yes. Molly knows this play inside and out, and we think that she is the best person to share it with us and also all of y'all. So there it is. Yeah. Also, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays and would like to talk with us about it on a future episode, email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas because that would be fun. Um, So thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. And like we said, in case Jess like said it too quickly because she was being so effusive, um, we are talking about Q1 Hamlet, which gets its own episode, the first quarto version of Hamlet, because... It's an entirely different version of Hamlet. So we have to do another 101 episode. You think you know Hamlet, but you don't. So we're going to talk about it today. But also, is it entirely different? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. All different right. names, like different <laughs> sure, shit happens. Okay, and right. the, sometimes the same shit happens, but in different order. Like, yes. Okay. And yes. by different, you mean better than yes. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why we brought you on. So <laughs> Molly Seremit. Who the fuck are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, we know, but like, tell the world a little yeah. bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I know the amazing Jess and Aubrey because we are, we're all students together at the Mary Baldwin Shakespeare and Performance Program. Uh, I do have my MFA. I finished a couple of years ago. Uh, and now I am visiting guest faculty for the program. Uh, right now I'm co-teaching the devising module for the Rising MFA Company with Doreen Bechtel. And then in the fall, I have the supreme honor of co-teaching dramaturgy for the MLIT class. Uh, and it's my first time teaching dramaturgy, so I'm super excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I just, Molly, I want to toot your horn for you because I feel like you didn't toot your horn quite enough for my taste. Um, so Molly makes incredible theater. And <laughs> if you live in the United States of America... Um, mostly the eastern half, uh, you should keep an eye out this year for the American Shakespeare Center's touring production of Antigone, which Molly co-directed. Yes. And it's... Assistant directed. Or, assistant directed, sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's stunning, y'all. This is a show <laughs> not to miss, and it's beautiful. And go see it when they're in your neck of the woods, which you can find out when that's going to be if you go to the American Shakespeare Center dot website 
Yeah, no, it's true. I saw the dress rehearsal. I haven't seen any since, but I'm going to later this week because they've taken over the Playhouse now. But yeah, I am super excited about it. It's a gorgeous show. So it's super cool. It's the first time the ASC is doing a Greek play. Yeah, which was just sort of incredible to get to do something for the first time in that incredible space and with a company that was really sort of down to play and down to get real weird and Greek and shit. <laughs> so it's fun. If it comes near you, you should totally see it. Do it. So, so that it's a long introduction this week, y'all. Uh, but every week, what we do here on our podcast is we discuss a different play by that nice uh, William Chadwick Shakespeare. Um, Ooh, Chadwick. <laughs> nice. Okay. So yeah, so we discuss uh, a Shakespeare play. Uh, at what we like to call the 101 level and that week this week uh, we're doing q1 hamlet so the 101 level is introductory stuff it's everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff like you will get nowhere else like our opinions and molly seremet's opinions this week and you can sound super smart at cocktail parties now because you'll be able to talk about q1 hamlet and not just regular old hamlet so it's one perk Let's let's get into it. Um, so because we're word nerds, every week uh, we start our episodes with uh, the the rhetorical device of the week, which we draw from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. Uh, so for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. And it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So, Molly, you get to be the one. I'm going to put the cards right up here in the camera. You get to be the one to tell me <laughs> when to Ooh, stop. I'm yeah. so excited. Can I tell you, can I tell, can I call you a nickname while I do it? Can I say like, draw a card, buttercup? Absolutely. So yeah. draw a card, Buttercup. Thanks. Okay. And you tell me when to stop. Here we go. Stop. Ho, 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 ho. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. This week, the card is Hypology. Hypology? Hypology. I don't, I don't remember, remember what that is, but I remember hypology that I learned is. it. I remember thinking the word was weird, and so the word stuck in my brain, it's but I don't know what it means. by sense-changing reversal. Dude. Sorry. It's, it's stealing my thunder. No, sorry. sorry. <laughs> okay, now this is interesting. You, you took that off of our cheat sheet, right? Yes, because it's hanging that right next to my is desk. It's hanging on your wall, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so on the back, this one of this card, uh, Hypology, H-Y-P-A-L-L-A-G-E, by the way. The definition is misapplication or arrangement of sensory words. The fuck? Oh. Misapplication or arrangement of sensory words. And bottom is used as the example uh. here. He says, the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen, man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. So, That's a apology. Good good example yeah yeah okay so what was your definition jess yeah arrangement by sense changing reversal okay misapplication or arrangement of sensory words so they're okay yeah so bottom the eye of man hath not heard etc an example of hypology so there you it. go haha -ha. it's now time for your burbage break with master 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 molly ceramic Yay, I'm so excited. Um, <clears throat> so when I was thinking about what to talk about with Q1 Hamlet, uh, obviously one of the things that came to mind was talking about what's different, what makes Q1 really special. Um, some people call Q1 the bad cordo, uh, but I like to think of it as just the different cordo. So I thought for the Burbage break today, we could talk about stage directions, uh, because one of the things that I think is particularly cool about the Q1 text is that there's a lot of uncertainty about where this text came from. Uh, is it a memorial reconstruction? Is it a first draft? Is it uh, an edited text that was used for some sort of rogue touring production? Whatever. And there's really no, uh, there's really no like conclusive evidence for any one of those things that kind of overshadows the other. But the one thing that that is that is um, that jumps out about Q1 is that there are 
places in the text where we can kind of see the fingerprints of performance inside of this literary text. And I think that the best place to do that is to look at the stage directions. Um, so Q1, just a little bit about the text first, was printed in 1603 per its title page. Although interestingly, it was first licensed with the stationer's registry in 1602. For some reason, there's sort of a one-year gap between when it was registered and when it actually went to print. Uh, so that means that both Q1, the first quarto, and Q2, the second quarto, were in circulation for about 20 years before the folio was printed. Um, in this case, print order does not necessarily match order of creation. In the case of Hamlet, uh, when we talk about order of composition, it's likely not mathematical. So it's probably not Q1, then Q2, then the folio. But maybe it's Q2, the folio, and then Q1. What's interesting about that is that it places Q1 not as an early draft of like the later, more complete, awesome play, but perhaps an amended copy, something that, like I said, might be cut for performance or is maybe an adaptation for performance or even an adaptation of another adaptation in performance. In other words, Q1 might be the, quote, bad quarto, but if it's bad, it's intentionally bad. Q1 was born this way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I'm fucking so happy. <laughs> so for me, what I think that that what I think that that does is presents an option for what? Q1 that makes it a performance ready text. There's an actor uh, named Peter Guinness who played Hamlet in a Q1 production a number of years ago, and he said that Q1 Hamlet is Hamlet with the brakes off. And I really like that uh, because I think that in Q1, we can see a text that bears traces or remnants that kind of archive its own performance history sort of in real time. So one of the things, one of the places where we see this, like I said, is in the stage directions. So for example, in Q1, when we see the ghost of Hamlet's father, we see him a couple of times throughout the play. And in the first couple, in the first two times we see him, he's dressed in his armor. And we know that because the characters who witness the appearance of the ghost talk about what he looks like. Uh, and they very funnily talk about how he's wearing his beaver up, right? So his helmet, <laughs> but also hilarious. Um, and so that tells us that though in those appearances, the ghost looks battle ready. And he looks the way he did in life, the way he would have been seen publicly by his subjects, but also by his army, by his guards by his employees you know whatever however we see the ghost in later in the play in the closet scene and when this happens in q1 there's a unique stage direction that accompanies the ghost's appearance and the text says that um uh, the ghost enters in his nightgown so inside of q1 in this exchange inside of what would have been the ghost of hamlet's father's sort of private, his wife's private chamber, we see him in this sort of literally stripped down form. He comes in dressed for bed. Um, and that's uh, because that stage direction is unique to Q1. I think it's really interesting because as a lot of scholars suggest, that might memorialize a choice that was made in the playhouse, even if it was just at a specific performance by a specific actor who played that ghost. In some way, this text stages a decision to have the ghost appear in a public form, but also in a private form in his exchange with Hamlet and Gertrude. Um, and Hamlet in Q1 goes on to say, he goes on to describe his father in this closet scene as appearing in the habit as he lived, which I think is really interesting. Like we, we get these glimpses of the ghost as state leader, but also the ghost as parent and as husband. There's a similar stage direction that we see uh, in scene 13 in Q1, which is the quote unquote mad scene with Ophelia. And in this, this uh, scene, the 1603 first quarto has a stage direction that dictates that uh, Ophelia enters playing on a lute and her hair down singing. This is the only one of the three texts that has this sort of specific stage direction. Um, in the folio, she enters distracted, while in Q2, homegirl just enters. 
what I think is interesting about this Q1 stage direction is that presumably Ophelia is going to accompany herself as she sings this song. Um, which I think is interesting because it it speaks to a particular kind of madness, right? She's crazy, but she's not crazy enough that she's forgotten how to play an instrument, right? She's not crazy enough that she hasn't planned this in advance, right? She then exits and sort of very quickly turns around and comes back in with the flowers. This is the scene where Ophelia says, here's Rosemary for remembrance. And to these poor bemused strangers who really don't want anything from this poor little crazy girl, right? So we get this kind of like parade of props and musical instruments dictated by the text here. And I think that that's, that's a a hallmark of performance that we can find inside of Q1. And in a weird way, these are the, these two stage directions in particular sort of carry over into most of what we think about in pop culture when we think about Hamlet, right? If you think about portraits or paintings that you've seen of Ophelia, her hair is usually down. She's got flowers in her hair and she looks sort of um, mystical almost, right? Th that comes from Q1. We don't get that feeling from the other text. Similarly, a lot of productions of the, the non-Q1 texts of Hamlet stage the ghost in his pajamas or some sort of non-armor iteration when he comes in in the closet scene. So inside of uh, the Shakespeare bubble and inside of pop culture, we often talk about the bad cordo, and yet its its text is so pervasive, partially because of these like dirty little playhouse fingers that are all over it, that even when we think about what we think we know about Hamlet, some of it comes from the first cordo and this kind of bad text. And I think that's incredibly exciting. Um, even if we think that we like the real Hamlet and hate the bad Cordo, we can't get away from it. And that I think is super cool. And really like the beauty of this text. You just blew my mind hole in so <laughs> many big and beautiful and important ways. Yeah. Yeah. Like, damn. <laughs> Man, I love it. Do and you guys see why we brought direction. her on? Right? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> my oh friend my God. Molly okay. is a genius. Uh. <laughs> That was your mind-blowing burbage break with Master, Master, Master Molly Ceremet. Oh, my God. Okay. So before we do a summary of a, any play, we like to contribute five-word unhelpful titles. Um, mine is Gertrude's Got Big Brassy Balls. <laughs> nice. Uh, this week I'm saying it's Hamlet, but just less. And I went with Gertrude from MILF to Banff. I like yours better. Yeah, that's yes. And it's true. Yep. So true. I really true. like Gertrude in this play, guys. She's yeah. so good. She is. She is so damn good. Um, and like a completely different character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll get there. Okay. Ooh, we're getting ahead <laughs> of ourselves. All right. So a little bit of DP, Dramatis Personae. But only the really important ones. And, you know, if you know Hamlet a little bit, you're going to know most of these people. But some of the names have been changed. Not to protect the... <laughs> I'm so, so glad you went there because I was just ready to make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So first and foremost, of course, we have Hamlet, broody prince of Denmark. Yep. Uh, we've also got your your bro, bro ratio. Good old, good old Horatio, <laughs> Hamlet's pal. He's He's here still. Yep. And then there's Carambus. Uh, Carambus is the father to Ophelia and Laertes. He's called Polonius in the other two versions of the text. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Gertrude, uh, spelled Gertrude in the other texts. Uh, she's still Hamlet's mother, still <laughs> married to her, was her brother-in-law, <laughs> who was married to her deceased husband. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Ophelia. <laughs> Same old, uh, you know, Hamlet's love interest, although in this text, her name is spelled with an F instead of PH. There's the king who totally killed his brother and took his wife and his crown. One of those is more upsetting than the other, if you ask Hamlet. <laughs> uh, then we have Laertes, Ophelia's brother. He's got, oh, and the ghost. Oh, what? Uh, Laertes has got a slight 
name spelling difference in this text as oh, well. Yes. The E and the A are in different order. So it's like Leertes instead of Laertes. Uh, and then, of course, we have Ghost Hamlet or Ghost Papa Hamlet, the former king of Denmark, <laughs> the one who was killed. So why is this play so goddamn popular? Well, it's sort of not. <laughs> I mean, it's popular to rag on it and to call it the bad cordo or the unstable text. Um, but it has a lot going for it. In my opinion, the biggest sort of thing in its favor is that it's only about 2,000 lines in total, which makes it nearly 2,000 lines shorter than either the folio or Q2. Um, but even though the text is shorter, it has all the plot of the regularly accepted versions. It's just in concentrated form. It's like Halo Top if Halo Top was actually delicious, right? <laughs> It's all the same stuff. Well, there goes our sponsorship. Jesus, falling. <laughs> I mean, come on. Just look at me. I don't eat low-fat ice cream. Please. Oh, no. Hell no. Please. No. <laughs> Life is too short for low-fat ice cream. You heard it here. Word. Folks. Eat the it's fucking haagen You want it anyways. Oh, my God. Yes. Yum. Oh, now I want haagen Yeah. Jeez. No. There's cream. our sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. no, I mean, I think the length of the play is, is one of the greatest things going for it. Um, but like we talked about, we sort of spoiled a little bit. Gertrude in this play is awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the version of the text where when in the closet scene, Hamlet sort of lays it on about everything that the king has done. Uh, the king is Claudius in the other two texts of the play. Um, Gertrude is the one who says, you know what? Not only do I believe you, but I'll hide this from the king. I'll conceal your plan and then I'll do whatever it is you need me to do to help. Granted, she doesn't really get a chance to do any of those things, but she says out loud that she will. And this is the version of the text where we know that she knows that the guy she's sharing a bed with killed the last guy she shared a bed with. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty interesting and sort of opens up a channel in what I think is one of the most like hyper-masculine plays in the canon, it opens up this, like, female perspective, which I think is pretty fascinating. Totally. Summary time. All righty. So uh, this week, we're going to summarize Q1 Hamlet for you in a segment that we're going to call Get Ready for Gertrude. Which is solid i dig it not the most exciting title i have ever uh fucking written. kidding me yes it is okay all right it is the most Work exciting title i've ever written in the history of naming my son ever. every week <laughs> uh all right aubrey are you ready Molly, i am are you ready born ready okay then uh here here we go uh, you know hamlet in a ham minute <laughs> that joke wasn't funny the first time i said it back in hamlet 101 <laughs> okay all right take it away molly Okay, so scene one, it's very cold and very dark, and there's a ghost wandering around the castle's battlements. Horatio, Marcellus, and Barnardo witness the ghost. They note how much it looks like dead King Hamlet, so they speak to it, and then decide to go tell Hamlet what they saw. Okay, scene two. The king sends his ambassadors, Cornelia and Voltmar, to Fortinbras. He's that Danish guy. No, the other he's not a Danish guy. He's a Norwegian guy. He's a dirty Norwegian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag dirty Norwegians. <laughs> dirty Norwegians. <laughs> um, so they're sending him. Uh, there's this whole political thing with Fortinbras still happening in Q1. Laertes gets permission to head back to France. The king and Gertrude urge Hamlet to stay and to stop being so sad all the time. Hamlet's lamenting his father's death and his mother's or hasty remarriage to his uncle, which he thinks is icky and incestuous. The battlement boys enter and tell <laughs> Hamlet about seeing the ghost of his father, which trips him out a little bit. And they all plan to watch it again that night. Okay. Uh, scene three, Laertes says goodbye to Ophelia and he tells her not to trust Hamlet because Hamlet is a playboy. Um, Carambus gives Laertes some advice and Laertes leaves to go back to France and go to school. Uh, Carambus then asks Ophelia what Laertes said about Hamlet because Carambus is a 12-year-old girl who is here for the hot goss. Um, and he instructs her not to receive any love tokens from him. 
Nope, no tokens. Uh, the Battleman boys await the ghost in scene four, and it's cold, and they talk about how cold it is, and they don't know what time it is. And in the interim, they're disturbed by the sounds of revelry coming from the king's parties at the castle, which Hamlet's really bitter about. And the ghost appears, and it beckons to Hamlet, and Hamlet follows it, even though Marcellus and Horatio tell him not to. In scene five, shit gets real because the ghost tells Hamlet that the new king was his murderer and instructs Hamlet to revenge his death. Hamlet makes his companions swear to secrecy about what they have seen. In scene six, Carambus sends Montento with letters to Laertes um, and I think instructions to spy on him and like see if he's behaving like a good boy should. Uh, Ophelia recounts her interaction with Hamlet in his state of distraction and undress to Carambus. And they go off to tell people about it. All right. Scene seven. More shit gets more real. So the king talks to Rossencraft and Gilderstone about keeping an eye on Hamlet. Voltimar and Cornelia return from their ambassage to Norway. Carambus relates Ophelia's encounter with Hamlet and reads his love letters. They all agree that love is the reason for Hamlet's madness. And they decide to watch what happens when Hamlet comes across Ophelia in the corridor. Hamlet... To bees or not, to bees. And then he tells Ophelia to take herself to a nunnery. The king, overhearing all of us, is unconvinced that love is the root of the problems. Hamlet then encounters Rossencraft and Gilderstone, who tell Hamlet that the players are come. Hamlet greets the players, he gives them some instruction about the night's entertainment, he makes fun of Carambus, and he resolves to catch the king out via the play. So then the king and Gertrude talk to Rossencraft and Gilderstone about Hamlet. Carambus devises a plan to overhear a conversation between Hamlet and his mother after the play, because what could possibly go wrong there? Literally nothing. Right? Yeah, it's a perfect plan, dude. Scene nine. Hamlet gives his advice to the players and everyone watches his little play. The king is upset by the performance and everyone disperses. Gee, I can't imagine why he was upset by that performance. Rossencraft and Gilderstone then tell Hamlet his mommy wants to speak with him in her closet. On his way to see Gertrude in her closet, Hamlet encounters the king at his prayers. He begins to strike at him, but then he demurs because, you know, thoughts above remain below whatever that line is. Because he was a praying. He was praying. So he's going to go to heaven. Can't kill him while yeah. he's praying. Yeah. So Hamlet indeed goes to talk to his mama and almost immediately stabs Carambus through the heiress, the curtain in her closet. Hamlet then forces Gertrude to confront images of her deceased hubby and also the new king. She begs him to lay off and then the ghost appears to Hamlet. He entreats her to forbear her marriage bed and Gertrude decides to trust Hamlet. Hamlet then exits with Carambus's body, Perfectly normal thing to do. And then Gertrude reports the murder to the king, Rossencraft, and Gildenstone. R and G and the king try to get Hamlet to say where he stashed Carambus's body, but he decides it's better to make some jokes about it. The king then dismisses Hamlet for England and reveals his plan to have Hamlet murdered by the English king. In scene 12, in five whole lines, Fortinbras sends a messenger to Denmark asking for safe passage through the country. Literally, that scene is five lines long. <laughs> but, like, five lines are all you need of that scene. It's so true. true. It's right? so true. Thank God. There he goes. Uh, there goes Fortinbras. Bye, Fortinbras. All righty. So here we go. Sort of home stretch. Home stretch. Uh, scene 13, Ophelia goes mad. Laertes arrives to revenge his father's death, and he is distressed to find out, not to find out, to find Ophelia out of her wits. The king calms Laertes by telling him revenge has already been carried out because he thinks that Hamlet's being murdered by the king of England. True. So then, in a scene that only appears in Q1 and doesn't show up in any of the other texts of Hamlet, Horatio and Gertrude have a private one-on-one -on -one conversation. Horatio reports to Gertrude that Hamlet has arrived safely back in Denmark, and Gertrude confesses that she's worried about the king's villainous intentions. Horatio, at the same time, after a little consideration, reports that Rossencraft and Gilder Gilderstone have died. Uh, and this scene kind of takes the place of, like, three other scenes from the Q2 right. and the folio text. Thank so, God. hooray for Q1. Yeah, because there are no pirates. There's no no mention of pirates in this play. Which, is Which if the pirates were on stage, I would miss them. Yeah, that's true. I don't that's care about pirates in a letter. Right. It's not yeah. as good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Not as so, good. Scene 15. The king and Laertes 
plot Hamlet's murder via poisoned sword in a friendly fencing match. Uh, and Gertrude enters with news of Ophelia's death by drowning. In scene 16, the gravediggers banter about whether or not Ophelia killed herself, and then they banter with Hamlet, and then Hamlet seizes Yorick's skull, and he reminisces a little bit, and then the royal party enters to bury Ophelia, which is how Hamlet finds out that she's dead. Hamlet interrupts a funeral when he jumps into her grave, after Laertes jumps into her grave, and they fight over the body. The two men argue, and Hamlet runs out in a huff with Horatio, bring us home, Molly! So then, a braggart court gentleman gets Hamlet to agree to a friendly fencing match with Laertes. They fight quickly. Gertrude drinks wine intended for Hamlet and is poisoned. Laertes and Hamlet catch each other's swords and are both wounded. Laertes falls. Gertrude dies. Hamlet stabs the king. Laertes dies. Hamlet dies. Fortinbras enters with the ambassadors to England and takes the crown. And all is well in Denmark? Who the hell knows? No blame at all. I'm just pointing it out that... Perhaps when trying to summarize Hamlet, Hamlet is still Hamlet. Why got a harsh my Q1 mellow Hamlet? Yeah. Why? Because Why? I'm a broody Dane? Question mark. That's what broody people do. <laughs> That's what he does. But I mean, also, I just I wanted to stop and talk a lot and be like, okay, but like it sounds the same. Like the summary is the same as what happens in regular Hamlet. Yeah. The scene is so much. It's it's notably different even though the highlights are the same which i I didn't capture that well in the summary and i'm sorry about it listeners but like read the play it'll take you 10 minutes because yeah thousand lines (laughs) go yeah go read it or find a production of it and go see it you know or just do a production of it oh my god yes do Do a production production. yes that's one of the things i like about the play so much is that like if you if you do this play this text of the play is just foreign enough to your audience that they will sort of have to meet Hamlet all over again. Mm-hmm. The The play is just unfamiliar enough that it it kind of offers an invitation to let go of what you think you know. Yeah. Like, this is not to be or not to be, that is the question. It's to be or not to be, I, there's the point. This is a, this is a different dude. Yeah. It, the circumstances may be the same, but Hamlet and all of the characters that orbit around him are markedly different. Um, and that can that pisses people off. But I think it's really an invitation. I have always enjoyed how how much more concise the language is generally in this version. And also like uh, and Jess will know this because Jess has my copy. Sorry. Of the Arden edition. Of I'm Q1. sorry. <laughs> Somehow ended up in Alabama Look, with her. Proof of life. But, it's right here. Yeah. But like I, I poured over it a ton. I bet it was pirates. Yeah, yeah. The pirates. Jess is a pirate. <laughs> uh, but I like I poured over that text for my thesis. Um, yeah. And and just the language is more Hamlet seems more politically focused, especially in like the to be or not to be speech. Like he there's a there's a part where he talks about, you know, the orphan wronged and the widow oppressed or something. He yeah. says the word oppressed specifically, which was very interesting to me and different and enough. Hamlet. Yeah. He's a different person. And he's much younger. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not just younger sounding, but Hamlet in Q1 is closer to 20 than he is to 30. Right. If you go by the gravediggers math. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And in some ways, I think the indecisiveness and the inability to to um, correct the things that are going wrong around him make more sense in a younger dude. Like, Mm -hmm. I have more empathy for that guy than I do for the 30-some-year-old dude bro who can't get his shit together. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? never really thought about it that way, but yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So... All right, so let's talk some tips and tidbits, and like we're just gonna hand this over to you. You've oh, done God. some. How many productions of this play have you done? Like we saw, well, the, <laughs> your devised thing of the one that incorporated characters yeah. Yeah. and and lemons and other really cool and ideas. <laughs> I mean, technically, I've never done a like a normal production of Q One. Okay. Um, I did do a de- sort of a devised adaptation that I called Quietus. Um, that was so that used good. the Q1 text. Right. Thank you. The main difference in that one, though, was that there was no Hamlet. Hamlet was played by an object. Right. 
Um, there was still Hamlet text, but other characters spoke it. Right. Like Ophelia spoke to be or not to be in her grave. Right. But I've never actually done a production of Q1, uh, but I'd really love to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think it's, I think it's a play that's purpose built for performance. It, it lacks some of the, the fat and the gristle that you get in the longer sort of overblown texts. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm showing my hand a little bit there, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think that that some of the stuff that goes on in it is really interesting. Like, you know, I was talking about stage directions earlier. Um, and the ones that, that I talked about in the the Burbage break are specifically stage directions. Those are things that, that we get in italics in the text that dictate how performance should happen. Um, but there are also some really interesting embedded stage directions. Uh, so things that characters say things that kind of happen because the actors, the characters on stage are narrating them. And Q1 has one of my favorite sort of baffling ones. And it's inside of the nunnery scene, which in Q1 is in a different place in the play than it appears in Q2 in Folio. And this is the scene where Hamlet does to be or not to be, right? But in this one, Hamlet enters this scene, which is scene seven if you're playing the home game. Um, He enters pouring upon a book. And we know that because uh, the king says it. He's kind of describing Hamlet's appearance. And that's the only text where Hamlet is reading. So two lines later in Q1, Carambus is setting up Ophelia to sort of entrap Hamlet. And he gives her a book and he says, here, read you on this book and walk aloof. So in a way, Carambus sets his own daughter up as a mirror of Hamlet. But that means that immediately when that scene between the two of them starts, their hands are both full. Which, ooh, it's not a Whoa. big detail, but I think it's a, it starts that what can be a very tense and often very physical scene yeah. in this place where both actors are sort of awkwardly unable to interact with each other. Yeah. Especially if you think about like, what is the size of the book that Carambus is making Ophelia carry? <laughs> right. Here's your Norton. You know, Go get yeah. him. <laughs> or it's like a giant fucking Atlas. Yes. It, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because I think what happens in performance is that scene often becomes like pushy and shovey between the two of them. And it yeah. often becomes Hamlet manhandling Ophelia because in all the texts, Carambus gives Ophelia a book. But in Q1, he has a book too. So if he's going to touch her, he first has to make a decision about how to how to deal with this prop that he has. And I guess he could just put it down on a table but in the Q1 text, they're in a gallery, which is kind of like a public space in the uh-huh. castle. So there's probably not an end table right next to him. Yeah. So instead, they're like starting this tense scene from a place of awkwardness. And then Ophelia has to pull out remembrances, too. So A, where the hell is she carrying them? And what are they? In this text, they have to be kind of small enough that she can have them on her person from the top of the scene, mm-hmm. which like, sure, maybe it's a pile of letters. Maybe it's a ring. Maybe she's pregnant. I don't know. It just it kind of opens up all these kind of interesting options. And the scene is not as straightforward because they both have to deal with these props that are kind right. of performing uh, alongside them, which I think right. is really, it's just really interesting to me. Um, you know, they can become an obstacle. They can become a weapon, a kind of protection from the other, which I think for such a little detail is really important. And I think that it matters because it's not like a, an italicized stage direction. The character, a character narrates it. Yeah. So it's like a deliberate it's not just an editor deciding, well, it would be fun if she had a book. It's it's a character, so it's it's crafted as part of the dialogue of the mm-hmm. play. And you kind of find little nuggets like that throughout the text, which I think are just really fascinating if you can stop trying to compare them to what goes on in Q2 and the folio and just kind of roll with the weirdness of it. I think you get this like really rad play as your payoff. 
I don't know if you found that too, but. Yeah. Um, well, I was just reminded of how rad it was because the first session of campers got to do an hour cut of yeah. this, of this one. Um, and that was the first time I'd seen it up on its feet in performance. Cause I too have never sure. done just a straight Q1 performance. Like when we did Hamlet, you know, with the wags, it was, we just cherry picked the stuff we liked from sure. Q1, you know? Um, so a lot of Q1 ended up in there. Um, but it was not, you know, straight Q1. So, but watching, watching these teenagers deal with it, I think like, like you said, it was just it, like they knew the story, but it was unfamiliar enough to where they could drop the pressure of, having to deal with Hamlet, yeah, you know, uh, and just do, do a play called Hamlet that was, sure. had like different language and, and they, they managed to come up with some really, really cool moments. I don't, I don't recall the book thing, but I'm, I'm always interested in the inversion of the order of the scenes, like the to be or not to sure. like where to be or not to be is, in Q1 compared with Q2 and what that says about Hamlet's mindset. Like he's, he's already in that mental headspace about Mm -hmm. being and not being like way ahead of time. Um, And what does that say about the rest of it? You know, I'm always fascinated by that. Totally. Totally. I mean, I think it, in a way, Q1 kind of takes away the question of is Hamlet performing it knowingly? Yeah. It's not to say it isn't there. You you could always make that choice, but because of its placement in Q1, it feels like it comes from a more organic place for mm-hmm. for a character struggling with the things that Hamlet is struggling from with. Mm-hmm. And I that's not to say that that the choice to make it performative is wrong. It's just Q1 kind of softens that angle. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a little bit more about a person working through some shit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me, that's where the play lives. I really, I really like that aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know, and you yeah. get that through some of the other soliloquies as well. Like in Q1, instead of, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I? He says, oh, what a dunghill idiot slave am I? And I just think like that is not an artistic or pleasant turn of phrase, but man, does it communicate a mental state. Yeah. That is, that is such a, I mean, pardon the pun, but that's such earthy, relatable language. Yeah. And it's not caught up in the poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that feels like a character who just feels like shit and yeah. has to put it into whatever words he can claw at. And I think it might not be elegant, right, but it gets the job done and it does it in a way that I think the rest of the text really supports. You know, this is the text where Laertes jumps in the grave. So Hamlet jumps in the grave. Right. Like this is a Hamlet who has no chill. And that's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting for a character that we often talk about as being like super indecisive, who can't Mm -hmm. make up his mind. He does. He makes up his mind to do a lot of things. They're just not, (laughs) they're not maybe things that move the plot along. Right. It's just not killing the king. Yeah. (laughs) He kills other people. Yeah. And he's someone who can feel passion and can feel overwhelmed and can feel like he's at the end of his rope, which I think you get through this sort of backwards janky poetry yeah in ways that the fancy stuff sometimes obscures yeah it's a lot more visceral that way like you said because it's it's not fancy it's not artful it's just yeah real yeah as much as any play is ever real sure shout out to paul menzer for making me doubt everything ever but (laughs) that guy the text is Uh, a lie and nothing is real Yep. Rude. <laughs> Except this play is really good. Yes. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, you know, like, in a way, the characters in this play, are, these characters are, like, laying it all out all the time. Gertrude is at a 10 pretty much the entire play. Ophelia, even, is running pretty hot. Like, Q1 is the text where, um, you know, in the scene we talked about in the summary where Hamlet 
appears to her and he's kind of crazy and a little bit undressed. Yeah. In the Q2 and the folio text, she tells that story to her dad, Polonius, in those texts. And he says, well, he must be crazy. In the Q1 text, Ophelia is the one who pinpoints that she thinks he's mad. She goes that extra step further in Q1 and doesn't just call out his behavior, but also puts a word to it. Mm. And she's the one who kind of plants that seed in Q1. It's a tiny detail, but it adds a layer of sophistication to Ophelia, which I think can be really interesting to allow to pervade what we think of that character and how we tackle her in performance. I love it. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to play a game? Yeah. All righty. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good job, Aubrey. Are you proud of me? Are you proud of I'm, me? I found I'm so it. proud. Um, okay. So we're going to play our favorite game, which is line roulette. And Molly, Ooh, I know hooray. you know how this works, but I'm going to say it anyway. So I'm going to roll some dice. Uh, And we're going to find a random line and then you get a minute to tell us why this single line encapsulates the entire play. Oh, good. It's going to be great. So my first question for you is the text that you're working from. I have the Arden three text. Fantastic. Okay. With the two textbook. Great. So that's a. It's a um, good one. I like that one. That just scene numbers, not act and scene. Okay. So yes. I still wish I had mine. But Oh my god, Ooh. Aubrey, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pirate. I put it in my backpack. I took it to Grafton. I worked on the summary. It's Pirate Queen Jess Hamlet. I put it yep. back in my backpack. I brought it back <laughs> to your house and then I left for Alabama without checking my backpack. I'm sorry. Fake news. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can have it back at Christmas, but proof of life. <laughs> it's still here. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So, Molly, Molly, Molly. We're looking yes. for scene nine. Ooh, that's a good one. Line. Yeah. Sixty-three. Okay. Do we have a scene nine, line sixty-three? We do. We do. Ooh, excellent. <laughs> but it's not a very interesting one. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so the line is Hamlet's. Uh, and this is uh, sort of right before the play within a play begins. And the line is, hark, they come. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, I can I can bullshit my way to this one. Do it. Um that's all this is anyway. It's all it's all BS for a minute. So Jess, do you have your timer or shall I, I time? Am I, I timing? I've okay. got it. I've okay. got it ready to go. Wait, huh? Take it oh. away. Okay. So what you have to know about this line is that it grows out of Hamlet's anticipation of this play that he's gonna have the players perform. And he's he's plotting with his bestie Horatio. And so even though the line is kind of silly, I think it does sort of sum up the tensions that are alive in this play in that we've got Hamlet who thinks he is all alone against the world. Even though there are lots of people surrounding him who are trying to help, Hamlet tends to interpret all of their help as hindrance. Right. So in this moment, Hamlet is trying to set the scene for this play he's performing. He's going to have performed for him. And in his excitement, all he can say is, hark, they come. And then Ophelia comes into the scene and Gertrude comes into the scene. These people who should be allies for him. And yet they are just more members of this army that is kind of marshaled against him. Then inside of the larger context of the play, we know from the very beginning that this whole play is structured around Fortinbras, who is trying to get sovereignty, who is trying to take over. So like in little and big ways, hark, they come sort of is the theme of this play. And to Hamlet, everybody's an enemy. Boom. Alrighty. So ding, ding, ding. a minute 12, but eh, you're allowed right. because you're my best friend and I make the rules. And you're a guest. I had three and... stupid words, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a and, break. Yeah. And you're our guest. Guests get to do whatever they want. That's it's true. fine. <laughs> you win at the game. <laughs> I don't Hi. know what you win except pride. But... Bragging rights. I bet it's more wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, out of your sippy Ooh, cup. Maybe. There are no losers. I want yeah. wine now. Can, yeah. Well, it's too late. Um, <laughs> Never too late. Well, I just yeah, 
there's so it's little too early for left. another day that's true <laughs> Um, all right, so that was awesome, and now we've got some gossip to get through, but it's, we don't have all that much gossip, so, uh... It's quiet time. It's, yeah, it's the end of the summer. Um, it's back to school time for large parts of the country that we live in, which is the United States. Um, so good luck to everyone who's heading back into the classroom right now-ish, which includes myself. I am... Teaching my first real class tomorrow. We're going to do Beowulf, y'all. Ooh. Are you doing the Seamus Heaney Beowulf? Of course I am. That's such a good one. It's the only one worth doing. And it's also the only one that's in the Norton. So It's Um, so good. It is good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love that Seamus Heaney. That's awesome. Um, Well, and it's not Shakespeare gossip, but it is theater gossip. We lost a, a great one this week. We lost Neil Simon. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just sad. That's all. That's all I have to contribute to the Shakes Bubble gossip. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's super sad. Yeah. He made comedy look easy, man. And it's so not. Yeah. Molly, what are you working on that you want to yeah. share with the listeners that's exciting that you haven't already shared? Well, because Jess Hamlet already put the audio bumper sticker in your ear, uh, <laughs> I'll reiterate that I was the assistant director for Antigone for the American Shakespeare Center's Hand of Time tour, which is coming to college campuses and high schools and community centers and lots of other places all over the country uh, this year. And if you're interested in checking that show out, you should check the American Shakespeare Center's website. Uh, I'm also currently directing a devised show for the current MFA company at Mary Baldwin Shakespeare and Performance. I'm not sure that they've gone public with their name yet, so I'm not going to name their company. But the device show is going to be pretty awesome. Uh, It's based on the shows in their season. And I just want to give a shout out to them, even though this is going to air after their show closes, uh, because they're a really exciting company and they're doing really wonderful work. And if you're interested, check out the S&P program on Facebook and you'll be able to find the company there upcoming season. Because you can see them all this year in their shows, which include Measure for Measure and Junable Kinsman and other things. But those two are my favorite. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I heard I heard that show is outdoors, this device show. Well, I was talking to one of the company members and she was yeah. like, she looked outside at the rain clouds and she was like, uh-oh. Yeah. Seen for us. And I was like, wait, you guys are outside? Nobody's done that since the rogues. Good for you. And there's a good reason why, because the weather in Virginia in August fucking sucks. Um, yep. We we think we are, by the time you're listening to this, we will probably almost certainly have been rained out and have to do it in our wonderful but bizarro Masonic building. It would be cool if it could be outside because it's the sort of general conceit for the show is that it takes place at Paris and Juliet's wedding reception. Oh! What? Which never, which never happened, so you might guess how that's going to go. Oh. Um, Amazing. Why but we were hoping I to be able to do. <laughs> <laughs> we were hoping to be outside, but I don't think that's going to happen. But they'll be wonderful regardless. Lots yeah. of music, lots of movement. It's largely a an unspoken performance. Cool. Um, yeah, it should be pretty rad. But do check out the company if you're yeah. in the Stanton area this year. They're they're good peeps. Amazing. Yeah. So that's what All I got. Right. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, I still don't have my slide whistle. Sorry about it. It's hey, thank you. <laughs> it's dick bracket time, and people weighed in. Thank you so much for getting in touch with us on all of the polls about the polls. <laughs> oh my gosh! Get out! I am taking back all of your you... master's degrees. As a person no. of Polish descent, I am offended. <laughs> I'm sorry. And if I knew how to say that in Polish, I would. <laughs> but I don't. So pierogi. Like that, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. My grandmother just slapped me from beyond the grave. Had pun. No, no shade on our Polish friends. Just making a dumb dick joke. Uh, so last week's last week's matchup uh, was Angelo versus Wilpone, and mm-hmm. everywhere Angelo won in a landslide. Yeah. Um, and then we because had, he's the worst. He's the worst. He's big dick. Uh, yeah. And then we had Iago. But also the Duke is pretty bad too. I just have to say. Yes. Yeah. If there was a dick enabler, 
It would be the Duke. That's yeah. not a thing. <laughs> I love everything. It's not a thing. But I'm sorry. Definitely... I come on your podcast and then I say inappropriate things. Uh, that's why we have you on. Also, have you heard our podcast ever? I know, right? <laughs> I appreciate um, all the time. So our other matchup was Iago versus Tamburlaine. Uh, and this one surprised me. Uh, but Tamburlaine carried the day. Did he now? He did. Yeah. Huh. So I'm I am also surprised by that. Yeah, and al- also kind of in a landslide. It's it's it was like 6535. Wow. Um Yeah, so I so uh Volpone, not Volpone, um Angelo and Tamberlane are are gonna be moving forward into the next round. Um and this week we've got two matchups, and that is Claudius from Hamlet. Or the king from Q1 Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> and he's up against Antiochus from Pericles. And then we're going to talk about Goneril and Regan from King Lear up against the White Devil Boys from The White Devil. So, um, oh, I love that play. Right? I so love The White Devil. Yeah. Um, love that play. Molly, would you like to lay out the case for why Claudius is a dick? I mean, sure. So... He's fucking his sister-in-law, which is pretty weird. But I think the bigger problem with it is that he is walking around being holier than thou about it. And I think that that's what kind of seals it for me. That he not only is doing it and keeping it a secret that he's doing it, but he has the nerve to pretend that he's the right noble king. And I think that that's what really sticks for me about Claudius is that he just has no shame. He has no, he has no compunction. He still thinks that he's in the right. And I have to say that in this play, in, in Hamlet, we don't actually get the sense that he thinks he's right because he's the best political leader. This play is very little about the politics of leadership. Mm -hmm. He's just, he just thinks he deserves it. And I I don't have any time for that, man. Mm. Mm. So, but Antiochus has that whole incest angle. So, oh you know, that's not so great either. Yeah. I mean, speaking of entitlement and like acting like you deserve it. I mean, Antiochus in Pericles. And if you've listened to our Pericles 101, folks, you'll know that Antiochus opens the play. Like he's been... He's been fucking his daughter, and then he puts her on display for f- and on the meat market to be married. But first, in order to marry her or even have a chance at her, he's got this weird little poem that he wrote that's like a riddle that all of her suitors have to figure out. And if they can't figure it out, they die. And if they do figure it out, like Pericles, the poem reveals that he's been fucking his daughter. Like... And then Pericles figures it out and he's like, mm, I'm not going to say it out loud because like you do you, man. And this is terrible. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to try to like backpedal out of it. And then he sends an assassin to go and kill Pericles and like chase the guy around. And like ha- all of the weird shit that happens to Pericles happens because he's trying to escape this assassin. So not only is Antiochus completely icky and putting his daughter and his shame and his shameful behavior and treatment of his daughter on display. He's also fucking around with Pericles, like, because he's also trying to hide it because Pericles figured it out. Like, I don't, I don't know. But I, have I think to say, Antiochus like, is the bigger dick. The world's worst way to hide something bad you're doing is to write a sassy little <laughs> riddle about it. I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite. <laughs> I'm just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> the best way is maybe to just keep your damn mouth shut. Right? Yeah. So what do I know? Yeah. And it's like, is that a brazen act or is he just that dumb? So we'll let the people decide Claudius versus Antiochus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a real Sophie's choice. It is. <laughs> these all are. It was really hard. Once we put the yeah. put like these matchups together, man. Yeah. These are these are pretty well matched folks in, in these brackets. So I think I think you should get us into Goneril and Regan. Okay. Yeah, Goneril and Regan, they uh, mistreat their ailing, aging father and don't seem to have a whole lot of empathy for him at all, ever. 
Um, they're pretty mean to their husbands and they cheat on him with the same guy. They decide that that guy, Edmund, is, um, I'm sorry. I just have a thing for bad boys in these plays. Um, but like they, and then they kill each other over Edmund and then they kill their sister. These are just some stone cold mean bitches, um, for kind of no reason. I don't, I don't, I don't know. We don't know how Lear treated them growing up versus their younger sister, who's like the angel child. But I mean, just based on that know. opening scene, I'm going to go with he did not treat them super well. Not great, probably. So, yeah. Compared to Cordelia. But yeah. I mean, it's the plight of all older sisters, speaking as an older sister, to feel <laughs> that way. So sure. Just saying. Um, all right, so they're matched up against uh, the the boys from the White Devil, which are Flaminio and Bracciano. Um, and Flaminio and Bracciano arrange for Flaminio's sister, Vittoria, to cuckold her husband. And then they also kill her husband. And then Bracciano kills his wife. And then Flaminio kills Bracciano, and it's just it's kind of a there's like there's a whole lot of killing for me the the killing is bad but the real dickishness comes in with the treatment of uh Bracciano's wife and Vittoria's husband um so Isabella and Camillo are both sort of extra dastardly dastardly <laughs> murdered uh with poison and a, a staged accident in air quotes anyway there's there's killing and it's it's not nice essentially so Mm. but is it is it not nicer than goneril and regan and what they do and that is that is up to the listeners to decide yes so you know i the the white devil boys are at a disadvantage because they are gonna be not as well known as goneril and regan but i i think they're worse because of all the murdering and the manipulation? Yeah. I think it's it's just it's a a shade worse than the murdering and manipulation that Goneril and Regan do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've got column A is Claudius versus Antigius, the nasty entitled men with way too much power who do some murdering and some incesting. And then in column B, we've got pairs of siblings who manipulate and murder together and then they turn on each other so yeah Um, that's who we've got this week so just to let our listeners in on how this is actually going to work going forward because like we're gonna have to record the next episode before this episode airs right so just going forward listeners keep an eye on the twitters you'll see the polls you'll know who's coming up be involved um aubrey you're also putting it out on facebook i am yeah Yeah. um i'm putting it on facebook on on my personal twitter as well as the hurly burly twitter i'm also just taking informal polls of my friends in the hallways i'm I'm throwing it up on our instagram too oh so how do we poll on instagram is that a I just, I just, people comment. That's all. Yeah. I just like zoom in on the picture of the bracket for the two brackets that we need. And then I've put them on the Insta. It's what the youths do, Jeff. It is. Yeah. Trying to get, trying to get those younger kids to weigh in a little bit. Right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Molly, for being here. We hope you leave this. Yeah. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started listeners. And I guess us too. I know I am. (laughs) Definitely. So, oh. Yeah. This week I learned yeah. some shit. Uh, so yeah, double thanks to my girl Molly for, for sitting down with us this week. We hope that you all love her just as much as we do. Actually, not just as much because I'm going to be jealous if you love her just as much because I get to love her the most. <laughs> um, but if you are interested in keeping up with what she's you doing, and you should be, you can follow her on Twitter at Moxie Molly. That's M-O-X-Y Molly. Uh, and then tune in next week for... For our first Christopher Marlowe play, The Jew of Malta 101, y'all. Ooh. That was amazing. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends. Rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. Hey, uh, Molly, do you have a favorite quote from Q1 that can take us out? tonight i really do like oh what a dunghill idiot slave am i i just i just i love it i love that guy that guy who just puts it all out there man and says i feel shitty Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet with no help from anyone because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast adjacent materials, visit our website at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. I said that because there's a, a picture of Chad Bradford hanging above my computer, and I looked up and I saw <laughs> oh. his face. <laughs> Um, See, my mind went immediately to Chadwick Boseman, but that's fine. Mine too. Well, that's only because you're not staring at Chad Bradford's face. True. No, Uh, I'm pretty sure it's (laughs) because it's Chadwick Boseman.